Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. The following program was pre-recorded and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. Get ready to take notes because school is now in session. Tackling the biggest issues in education, this is Education America. Save the classroom, save the country. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Abigail Johnson. Welcome to Education America, where we're working to save the country, or save the classroom so that we can save the country. Hey, I gotta—I just have to just start saying that rather than reading my script. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I think it works out very well. We are saving the country because we are trying to save the classroom, and we always say the battle is on for the future of our country right here in our American classroom. So um, we are so glad to be able to welcome back um, one of our favorite guests today, Katrin Wigfall. And I'm going to let you uh, introduce her, Abigail. Absolutely. We have Katrin Wigfall with us. She is a policy fellow at the Center of the American Experiment. And you all should be so grateful to Katrin because she follows all of these disastrous education policies that are being passed at the legislature so that you don't have to. And as someone that used to have to read these 800-page pieces of legislation, I'm very (laughs) grateful to you, Katrin, for all that you are doing. So welcome, and thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, ladies. This is so fun. Yeah. Well, and I think the last time I saw you was when Corey DeAngelis was in town, and you were one of the sponsoring people of the, not the people, but uh, the Center of the American Experiment was one of the sponsors of that event. And that was a great event. And you did a great job of emceeing that event. So thank you. (laughs) Yes. Well, and back at you too, Rebecca, for participating on the panel. Thank you for sharing just your wisdom and insights. You you both have been fearless leaders in this space, so you help make uh, my job more enjoyable and and give me hope each day as we tackle these uh, these shortcomings within yeah. our state's education system. Well, thank you, thank you, and thank you for what you do. So we thought we would just start by um, we're going to spend a couple of shows together, which will be nice for our listeners because there's a lot to tackle in the education realm here in Minnesota. Um, but we thought we would discuss this new. Uh, $2.2 billion in new funding for Minnesota schools that just passed um, the House. And we'd love it if you could kind of dive into some of the specifics of the bill and what it's going to mean for our families and our educators in the state of Minnesota. And obviously, both the Democrats and the Republicans are um, supporting this new funding boost, but they both disagree on how to allocate the money. And there's a couple different perspectives on that. And maybe you could maybe speak to that for starters before we go into some of the details in the bill. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the House Education Omnibus Bill was signed by Governor Walls into law. Um, it had uh, just one Senate Republican sign onto it, and it's it's basically the same that we have seen in past sessions regarding education spending. So every session, there are legislators in both parties that cave to the teachers' union and add money to the per-pupil funding formula. But what we found this year is that Democrats took it a step further, and they boosted education spending, but they also tied future increases in the formula to inflation. Kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so they, they can gave you go us into a ceiling and a floor. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, you mentioned there is $2.26 billion in new funding for schools. Uh, we'll touch on more later how there's really no accountability for academic achievement tied mm-hmm. to that funding. And so now we have a uh, an education spending budget of $23.2 billion over the next two years. Wow. And that makes up about a third of our total state budget. So, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, we do continually add to the education budget uh, every uh, for, you know every budget setting session. And so we'll see if these new dollars can do what others haven't done in the past to boost <laughs> student achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the large with this large chunk of new spending, the largest chunk is going toward increases. Uh, in what's called the per-pupil formula, the, mm-hmm. basically the main funding formula that determines the minimum amount that a school district receives for the students it educates. And Katrin, so, can I back up just for our listeners yes. for one minute and, and just to help them understand how pivotal this is to mm-hmm. actually increase the per-pupil funding amount? Um, and I, I won't. I promise I won't get into spreadsheets. But um, <laughs> the, with education funding, there, there, the per pupil funding is the main way. Those are, you know, these are butts and seats, ladies and gentlemen. So, if a particular school district has X number of kids, then the X number of kids is multiplied by the per pupil funding amount. It is a huge part of a school's budget. But then, in addition to this huge block of funding. They're also what's called, I, I don't know if they've changed it since I've been there, but it's categorical funding. And so mm-hmm. these are much smaller line items. And then each of those line items, have it, they each have their own formula for how they're yes. distributed. Mm-hmm. And they're all, and I don't want to say that they're ticky tacky. They're all actually important and they're usually trying to address very target, more targeted needs at schools. So when Katrin says that they increase the per pupil funding, that is, that is a huge amount of money, not just for this year and next year, but it is a, and it is an amount that will grow each year and it's incredibly expensive to do. So I'm sorry to interrupt, Katrin, but I wanted them to no, kind of have that No, thanks background. for clarifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's another thing is that figuring out education f- uh, funding revenue streams is very complicated. <laughs> uh, I did a whole presentation for um, new legislators on the topic, and we got really into the weeds, and it can be a bit mind-numbing. Oh, yes. So I, I really appreciate you just kind of breaking it down and saying that, Yes, the the per pupil formula is the the minimum amount that a school district gets. So uh, it's currently just over sixty eight hundred dollars per student. So say then a school has a thousand students, the minimum amount that school district would receive to educate those students would be six point eight million dollars. Mm-hmm. So that 
per pupil amount ha- is increased 4% for fiscal year 2024, and then 2% for fiscal year 2025. And then you get the automatic increases uh, following that that have been indexed to inflation. Wow. Now, I I mentioned that it's you know indexed to inflation, sort of, <laughs> yes. because the there is a floor and a ceiling. So okay. the, the minimum amount that that per-pupil formula can be increased, indexed to inflation, is 2% and then capped at 3%. Yeah. But what's telling about indexing it to inflation is – we don't know what the population in Minnesota is going to look like. We have residents leaving. Mm-hmm. So the legislature will be uh, held accountable to provide this education funding regardless of those other factors. Right. So the concern is is that you will see uh, property taxes go up, schools will go to their residents for new levies and referendums to try to make up any difference that could be felt because of population changes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that is that is what we will uh, have to wait and see regarding inflation. Um, so the basic formula really isn't a complete measure of funding because you mentioned oh, all these other not. streams that go into it. And so you, you often hear uh, DFL legislators and the teachers union say, well, these increases are needed and we have to index it to inflation because we haven't kept pace with inflation over the years. And it's really important that you, as a listener or a reader, when you read that statement or hear it, that you dig in and find out, well, what, well, how are they, first of all, how are they defining inflation? And second, which funding uh, formula are they referring to? Uh, because the one that is often used by the public, the consumer price index, is not the one that is always used by school officials when when they talk about inflation. Hmm. So that distinction is important. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth noting that I was pleasantly surprised that the education bill actually does name the consumer price index as, uh, as the model that will be used to calculate uh, inflation. So I see that as a positive because uh, that is what is most widely used. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good mm-hmm. to hear. Well, so we do know that we are going to have a, a lot of new funding in the next couple of years. But then, as you pointed out, none of this is tied to any academic achievement. And you and I have had this conversation, Abigail has had this conversation, where sadly our test scores across the state of Minnesota continue to sink and to really an alarming rate of concern, in my opinion. Um, But the reason for that is likely because the emphasis has really shifted from reading, writing, and arithmetic to some of these other topics that have been really the headline of Minnesota education discussion for the last two to three years. And the first one of those is the ethnic studies um, curriculum, that really is tied to the new social studies standards. So maybe you could describe for us, Catherine, the connection, first of all, between the ethnic studies being required in all classrooms through this new legislation versus the new social studies standards and the new ethnic studies strand that's in that social studies um, standards legislation, too. Yes, that, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think 
first and foremost, the the most important thing to note with conversations around ethnic studies and the concern that American Experiment has raised uh, about this is that this course and and what it is rooted in and how it is framed and the curriculum around it um, is not disparaging the importance of elevating cultures and backgrounds and contributions of all the people groups who have shaped Minnesota and our country. That is not, though, what this version of ethnic studies is about. Mm -hmm. So I just want to start with that because there's a lot of, uh, you know, back and forth on, well, you don't want students to see themselves in the curriculum or or that sort of thing. And that is not what this is about. Mm -hmm. This is about injecting a a very reductive and racialized way of thinking Mm -hmm. uh, into Minnesota's public classrooms under very innocuous terms. So Mm -hmm. terms like ethnic studies Mm -hmm. that represent ideas that, that we all support. And under past terms right. have represented those ideas, but they're really being changed into something else and, and mm-hmm. shifting education away from its traditional focus on excellence and, and pragmatic instruction. So mm-hmm. just to start with that as, as a clarifier, mm-hmm. um, but what we have, what we first saw with the introduction of ethnic studies um, was in the social studies standards revision process that began back in 2020. Mm -hmm. And the social studies committee selected by the Minnesota Department of Education has made ethnic studies a fifth strand within social studies. So social studies, you have the study of history, geography, um, uh, economics, citizenship. Mm -hmm. And so ethnic studies now has been added as this fifth strand. Mm -hmm. And within that uh, strand are standards and benchmarks that students in K-12 have to meet. Mm -hmm. So social studies, though, is a very gray area in Minnesota as far as how, how many of these standards and benchmarks do teachers actually get to and cover throughout a student's K-12 journey because we don't have a social size, social studies standardized test. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the standards are going through a rulemaking process. They are separate from the legislature. The legislature used to be involved in approving uh, academic standards, but that was changed. And so now academic standards go through a rulemaking process and ultimately get approved by an administrative law judge who appoints administrative law judges, uh, the governor. So mm-hmm. there's there's that route mm-hmm. for updating the state's K-12 standards and benchmarks. Which is, now. Mm-hmm. I was just going to add really quickly for our listeners, the accountability measure that's supposed to be in place with that rulemaking body is the standards committee. But in this Mm -hmm. particular case, the Standards Committee was made up of activists mainly who um, were appointed by the governor and and didn't necessarily, well, didn't at all represent kind of a maybe a more broad spectrum of population. It it Mm -hmm. was very much geared in a certain direction to emphasize diversity, equity and inclusion in the new sense versus the old sense. Would that be mm-hmm. a good assessment in your eyes? Yes, that's mm-hmm. that's a great thing to point out. And a lot of the individuals on the committee uh, represent organizations that would benefit from adding ethnic studies to standards and benchmarks and to coursework requirements because of uh, because that's what they focus on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so we also saw a lack of diversity of 
perspective mm-hmm. uh, and diversity of thought on the committee. And there were there were also very few individuals who represented uh, content specialists. Right. And so there was, I think, one... Uh, history professor from the U of M, but was was very focused on, um, I think, like, it like Native African religious yes, studies yes, or, or something so, of, right. of mm-hmm. that nature. Mm-hmm. And so we saw you saw very few uh, historians and and that sort of thing on on the on the committee. And so that obviously sets the the tone for how the the content will be framed and what will be prioritized for the next 10 years. So mm-hmm. I, I should note standards and benchmarks are revised every 10 years. So this is essentially a student's entire K-12 journey mm-hmm. that will be determined uh, for them as far as what they will and will not learn. Mm-hmm. So that's the social studies side. And just a shout out to anyone listening who was involved in submitting public feedback during the public feedback comment periods, because there were over 30,000 Minnesotans who submitted feedback to the Department of Ed saying, this is taking education, particularly social studies education, in the wrong direction. So we very much appreciate those who got involved and the feedback they submitted, because it did cause the implementation of these standards to be delayed. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I think we need to add a good thank you and shout out to you because you did a big tour around the state of Minnesota, mm-hmm. I believe, to try to help <laughs> uh, awaken interest and concern. And so obviously that was successful too. So um, definitely. Thank you. Yeah. And well, seven months pregnant, I should know. Oh, that's right. I oh, forgot man. about Gosh. that. You were. You were. Wow. <laughs> You're a trooper, Catherine. Well, it's all for the important. children. It's all for the children, right? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my. Well, so. But then to get uh, yeah. to your point, mm-hmm. yes, about, so now ethnic studies in the education omnibus bill. So this was obviously a piece that was approved by the legislature. So mm-hmm. shifting gears from the standards and benchmarks that went through or are going through rulemaking to now ethnic studies within uh, the education omnibus bill. And we see kind of a, a timeline overlap. So the social studies standards and benchmarks have not been approved. They're kind of, we're kind of in this waiting game on the Department of Ed. They have to release what's called a statement of need and reasonableness or a sonar that essentially lays out why the administrative law judge should approve these changes. And the, the, I guess the assumption is that that has not been released because they were adding ethnic studies to social studies, but that definition of social studies in current state law does not include ethnic studies. Mm -hmm. So they were waiting on the legislature to see what ethnic studies bills would be passed, because otherwise the administrative law judge could look at the standards and benchmarks and say, well, you don't have the authority to add this content in Mm -hmm. because of how the subject area is defined. Mm -hmm. So now, though, there is state law that says that ethnic studies has to not only be embedded in social studies standards, but all academic standards. So think about what that will look like for math and science and reading. We're we're just not sure, but Mm -hmm. it will have to be embedded in all academic standards. Uh, It will be a High school students will have to take the course, not as a graduation requirement, but um, 
or sorry, high schools will have to offer the course by the 2026 school year. It is not a graduation requirement, mm-hmm. um, but then elementary and middle schools will also have to offer the course uh, the following year. So this is impacting K-12 classrooms, academic standards. Uh, students have to be allowed to take an ethnic studies course to satisfy their social studies requirement, but also to fulfill a language arts arts, math, or science credit. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so it's really spanning the, the gamut on, on what this course can be applied to for credit and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, school districts will also be on the line to conduct an ethnic studies school survey as part of a school needs assessment, followed by an annual evaluation. Uh, we see more bureaucracy at play because yes. the Department of Ed will have to hire an unspecified number of ethnic studies staff to oversee all of this implementation in school districts mm-hmm. and charter schools. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, there's going to be a large dollar figure attached to this, and that is something to note that, yes, we have all of this new funding, but we also have so many new mandates, mm-hmm. and we also have unfunded mandates. Mm-hmm. So school leaders themselves have even said, we're very concerned about what these new mandates will mean for our budgets. Mm. Oh, my goodness. You know, this is really amazing. People go to the voting booth and they vote and they, you know, you wonder how much do they really look into the views of the various candidates? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are waking or are going to wake up maybe this fall you know, when, when schools open or maybe actually 2026, I guess, maybe when the ethnic studies, do they have to add it into all the other subjects starting in 2026 as well? Um, that will be, they'll be embedded in the academic standards as they come up for revision. So the subjects okay. are on a 10 year rotating basis. Right. And so sometimes they you know, overlap. It's not, ev- it's sometimes they overlap, but like, so mm-hmm. um, we're doing social studies right now. And then um, I, think they're working I on believe physical too, education should come up and math was, is nearing the end. So for each okay. subject area, it's, it's a, it's mm-hmm. a 10 year mm-hmm. uh, rotating cycle. So, but the point I'm making is that parents are going to suddenly see all of this and well, we hope they see it. Um, in their children's curriculum and wonder, well, where did all of this come from? And, you know, I find Mm. it just so shocking that um, there isn't more public um, maybe review of all of this. You know, the, you don't see a lot of this covered on the nightly news, the local news. Um, This just doesn't seem to be something that is very well known actually. And, and yet it's so tied to who you vote for, and therefore it should be really, really important that people know. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, that's just not what happens. And then I think people wake up and wonder, well, how did this happen? Well, and right. I mean, mm-hmm. the Minnesota has made national news over and over oh and gosh. over, um, really for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Not anything that's highly complimentary. Mm-hmm. Let's just be very honest. Um, and yet, local news says not a word. So, you know, again, you know, credit to places like, you know, Alpha News and the Patriot, places that are willing to be bold and kind of be the, you know, the the rebellious one. Whoever mm-hmm. thought that would be kind of us, yeah. you know, be willing to say, let's let's look a little deeper here. Let's look at the facts and the data and see mm-hmm. if there's more to this story. 
So mm-hmm. just just as kind of a summary of this one um, topic, then really what we're what we're saying is that this divisive curriculum, which is really the problem, it's not that we don't want to learn about other ethnicities and you know how the state of Minnesota was shaped and how the you know country was shaped, um, but unfortunately, so much of this is the progressive ideation or idea that we should be um, seeing everything through the lens of race. And that is now going to be entering into all of our subjects, not just social studies. And it's, it's very concerning. It Uh, is. It's a very illiberal worldview. And, you know, we'll see how this impacts the next generation of leaders. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of time left in this particular segment, and we're going to pick up some big topics in the next segment as well. Um, but maybe you could try to spend a couple of minutes touching in on um, some of the uh, changes to the PSEO program and mm. the exclusion that's there for the certain religious colleges and universities. Yes, this was such a disheartening provision in the education omnibus bill, uh, particularly because the restrictive language was removed by the Senate on a bipartisan vote. There were two DFL senators who are in swing districts. They voted with Republicans Mm -hmm. to protect this popular program, PSEO, Mm post-secondary enrollment options. Uh, But then in conference committee, the conference committee ignored this bipartisan amendment and reverted to the original language. Mm -hmm. And the original language says that religious colleges or universities that require a statement of faith from students who would participate in their PSEO program are no longer eligible. Mm -hmm. And so this is a huge blow to religious freedom and religious liberty. There's already been a a lawsuit filed uh, against this provision, which... Uh, us and many others, we warned about this and there were attorneys warning about this. So it's unfortunate that it has come to this. Um, but it's just based on U.S. recent U.S. Supreme Court rulings that there, this cannot be in place. I mean, yes. if you are going to uh, subsidize private education, which a state is not required to do, but once a state decides to do so, it can't disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious. And that's exactly what this provision is doing by saying that those schools that require a faith statement from students, the students get to choose. They're not forced to go to one of these uh, religious schools that requires it. But um, so it's, it's just, it's very concerning for religious freedom in the state, and uh, I hope the lawsuits will prevail and we can get this struck. Mm -hmm. And another just little piece of background for our listeners, when Katrin mentions that it was, you know, omitted, taken out by the Senate, and then in conference committee was put back in, what that means is it's cover for everyone that voted Mm -hmm. a particular way. They're taking away that accountability from all those Mm -hmm. legislators. Mm -hmm. The conference committee is a group of senators, a a handful of senators, and then in the House and the um, legislators in the House, and they go back and they make backroom deals, Mm -hmm. and they decide what really goes in and goes out. So just so you all know, this is your tax dollars at work, Mm -hmm. Um, and it frustrates me. I hope it frustrates others as well, knowing that, um, really, they're going to they jammed through what they wanted anyway, despite, you know, the vote on the Senate floor. And that's very disheartening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
And this yep. program has been in place for a number of years, yeah, decades. Like and so mm-hmm. why, why now, uh, you know, why go after this, this very popular PSEO program that has helped thousands of students uh, earn college credit and courses offered have always had to be non-sectarian and yeah. have had to be approved by the Department of Ed. So yeah. the timing of it is a bit of a head scratcher. Yeah. You know, why now? Yeah. yeah, why now? Well, because they had the trifecta and they're just going to take as much as they could. <laughs> yep. So we'll catch them. We thank you so much that you joined us again today and we look forward to continuing this conversation next week. And thank you to all of our listeners. And you can listen to this podcast at SaveTheClassroom.com. SaveTheClassroom.com. Have a good night.